Welcome to Beer Prime, episode 30. Today's guest, Matt Curtis. Welcome to the episode. Today I'll be speaking with beer writer Matt Curtis, all about his new book, Modern British Beer. You may recall Matt being one of my guests on the Christmas episode alongside Adrian Tierney-Jones and Claire Bullen, where we talked about the best beers and breweries of the year. Uh, as well as books, Matt writes for his own publication, Pellicle, amongst others as well, such as Ferment and Good Beer Hunting, and also does the hugely popular Pellicle podcast. Before we speak with Matt, let's get a quick bit of beer news. Pubs are running drive beer due to lack of HGV drivers. There are reports of a perfect storm of the pandemic, Brexit and an impending Drayman strike, meaning that beer deliveries are affected and some pubs are running dry. Well, the main places affected by this are the major chains and tide pubs, as the industrial action part of it is due to the potential strike of GXO Logistics drinks drivers. So whilst some craft breweries still might be affected, the vast majority won't. So pubs, bars and restaurants are being encouraged to look to local independent breweries instead of mass-produced beers from the globals. Of course, bars who already look to these kind of breweries for their beers will likely as not be totally unaffected. Good Things Brewery damaged by lightning strike fire. The Sussex brewery Good Things Brewery in Eeridge, near Tunbridge Wells, was badly damaged by fire after being struck by lightning in late July. Thankfully, no one was injured in the blaze. Co-founder Chris Drummond said in the brewery's media posts that we are all in shock. Drummond added, our beloved 17th century barn, the home to our brewery, was struck by lightning today and is sadly burned to the ground. They put up a GoFundMe page, which was swamped with donations currently standing at just over £20,000. The statement on their website continues, We're currently taking some time as a team to regroup, rethink and rebuild our future, whatever that may look like. We'll be back in touch in the next few weeks, but until then, we just wanted to say this. Thank you all so much for all the love and support you have sent our way. We cannot begin to show how grateful we are. Support has come from thousands of beautiful humans across the globe for which we are deeply humbled and incredibly proud. Proud of us, our team, but more than anything, the industry we work in. Brewers across the UK have offered to help us in any way they can. Customers have offered to help us rebuild our barn. You have come in your hundreds to buy up the last stock across trade and into your homes. And for all of this, we will be ever grateful. Uh, thank you all so much. So if you want to donate, the link on is on their Twitter account, which is at goodthingsbrco. Okay, that's at goodthingsbrco. So sending love to all the guys there and hoping they can get back up and running as soon as possible. Okay, so now it's time to welcome my guest for the episode, Matt Curtis. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm very good, Matt. Right. Okay. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Um, so very excited to talk to you about modern British beer. 
I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm very excited to have a copy in my hand after a lot of months of hard work. It, you know, I haven't come down from the ceiling yet. Uh, as I said before, you hit record. It's it's quite a feeling, not just to have it in my hands, but then to see so many people sharing their photos of it and comments about that. You know, their first experiences and thoughts on reading it. Uh, so now I'm in the stage where I'm like, there's you know, there's a few hundred people who've got a copy of it in their hands, and I'm kind of nervously. I really want to dig into it and discuss it, but I need to like let people read it and digest it first. It's, it's a long book. Yeah, and uh, I'm very much enjoying it. I, I'm virtually done. Um, I've, been, I've been hurriedly reading as much of it as I could before speaking to you, um, but nearly, nearly done. Um, but I mean, what I've read so far, absolutely fantastic. Really, really enjoying it and enjoying how the focus is on, you know, each story of each beer, uh, obviously tying it together with the regions and with your definition of modern British beer. Uh, mm. Before we come on to those kind of things then, uh, let's delve back a little bit and ask you, what made you start a career writing about beer? That's a great question. Um, this podcast is gonna be a long one. <laughs> because, um, I, I love talking about this. Um, when I started writing about beer, um, actually, I, I do talk about this in the first chapter of the book about how I had this, I was really into beer and I got into beer through my dad as, you know, from my late teens onwards. Um, and you know, he would share with me, you know, real ales and Belgian beers. So I was always quite interested in it, but it was in 2010. So not too long ago that he moved to America to, to Fort Collins, a town in Northern Colorado, where I experienced Odell brewing IPA their tap room and it really was a pivotal moment for me um it's something i talk about a lot and will probably talk about for the rest of my life but that was the moment my interest went into overdrive as it were and i came back from that first trip to the us and i you know frantically began googling breweries in the uk to try and find more interesting beers and i started reading a lot of beer blogs you know i remember reading Boken Bailey, Mark Dredge, Adrian Tierney-Jones. Um, I bought Melissa Cole's first book, Let Me Tell You About Beer. Um, I read all of Pete Brown's books. Um, it's really quite funny because like, I read all these books and now these people are good friends of mine and, and peers. Um, but eventually after that, I decided that I had all this energy and I wanted to start a blog of my own. I'd, I'd had blogs about other subjects before. But um, I was really galvanized. So it was just a hobby, something because I was like an insufferable beer bore, basically. I, I, I just wanted to talk about beer all the time. And I thought, why not start a blog? Because that would help me get that out. But actually, it just made me worse. I just got more and more enthusiastic the more I wrote about it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm glad. And it, it was um, sort of a few years, there was no intention behind it, but a few years in magazines like ferment were launching and they would get in touch and, and said, would you, would you write for us? Um, good beer hunting back in 2015. So I've been blogging for about three years. Michael Kaiser, the founder said, would you want to uh, write an article for me? This is our, our rates. And I was like, blimey. So it kind of evolved from being a blog and a hobby into, into being something that was like almost like a second job. Um, and in, at the end of 2015, I decided I wanted to go full time uh, and everyone thought I was bonkers. Um, and uh, yeah, early 2016, I, I, I went for it and I've been doing it. I've actually been a professional beer writer for longer now than I was a, a beer blogger, um, which is, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, it's, 
you know, it's my, my dream job that I made up for myself. It's a very weird job. Not really many people understand it. I try and say, I'm, a, I, you know, I've, I, once or twice I've tried to call myself a journalist, but I'm not a journalist. I'm a writer uh, and, and a photographer to, to some degree. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's the kind of a job I made up for myself. And it, it, it came from a mixture of uh, enthusiasm and bloody mindedness. You know, when the opportunity started coming to, to write for people for, for a bit of money, I kind of jumped on it and, uh, uh, and it, it went from there really. And yeah. uh, here, here we are uh, that, that have now have a, a book out because of it. It's, it's uh, quite a ride. <laughs> yeah. And why not, as you say, you know, if it's something you really enjoy doing uh, to get paid for it too, why not? Yeah. It, it, I mean, let's be honest. It's not like a, a mega lucrative job. Um, it, that, that, that's something, you know, I love what I do, but uh, I'm not, it's not a job that will ever see you rolling in it. You know, it's, it's beer. It's, it's not, it's a, it's a lovely niche passion, you know, within sort of food and drink writing. But um, I mean, I'm writing about uh, the supply chain state, which sounds dull, but like looking at all the different aspects that go into making beer. And there's still so much uncovered ground, I think, in, in beer writing. So um, hopefully it will, you know, I, I look at someone like Roger Protz, for example, who's been writing about beer for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I really hope that like Roger, I'm still writing about beer in 50 years. He's about to release another book. Uh, he's one of the next books from camera uh, is from, from Roger, which is amazing. You know, that's aspirational to me. He, he's a, an absolute legend. Excellent. Okay. So let's get on to the book itself. Uh, as we said at the beginning, it's called modern British beer and, uh, it's already available, came out on the 12th of August. Where can people get the book from? Well, good question. You can buy it direct from the camera website. So it's, uh, if you go to camera.org.uk and click on the shop, you can buy in their online shop. It will be available at a few major retailers like uh, Waterstones and Blackwells, which is very exciting. I've been Googling it so much on my computer that I'm getting sponsored adverts for WH Smiths on, on, uh, for my own book on all my feeds. Um, it's available from a, a very a very big uh, mainstream retailer beginning with A uh, that I'd rather not. E- e- please don't buy it from them. Buy it from a small independent. What I will say is I've tried to encourage as many bottle shops and uh, tap rooms, especially the breweries that are included in the book. There are 86 breweries in the book um, to stock it. And most of them have. So do check in with, with your brewery or, or bottle shop. Um, I'm not going to list them all because it's quite a lot but uh yeah you, you should be able to pick it up when you pick up some beers and my plan is which i'm trying to organize by myself it's a lot more work than i anticipated unfortunately is to do a little book tour where i will appear at some of these places and and uh, do some readings and and some signings and all, all the things associated with a book so yeah it's um you know it's available online but do check with your indie retailers uh if they have it as well Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, certainly uh, the best way to buy, as you say, from uh, from the independents, especially the people that feature uh, in the book, alongside buying the beers that are in the book as well, so that you can actually drink along as you read. You need one. You, you've read it. You, you know, I wrote it with the intention that it hopefully makes you a bit thirsty. And oh, exactly. uh, a lot of a lot of people have said that 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 happens and you do need a beer with you if you if you're going to plow into it. 
It certainly does. And uh, as we're chatting here, I have opened uh, one of the beers in the book, uh, Thornbridge Jaipur. So obviously a very, very important beer when it comes to it. And, you know, obviously, as you say in uh, the book, when it comes to Brewdog Punk IPA about how influential um, Brewdog and Punk IPA is, undoubtedly that's, that's definitely true. But given that punk was born out of Jaipur, do you think maybe it's more influential? Um, this is this is an internal question. I think Jaipur is the most influential beer of the two. And I think um, at the start of the Jaipur entry, I, I literally talk about how this this is a, it's a really pivotal beer because it was the you know it was Martin Dickey not alone. He was with Stefano Cossi and some others at, at Thornbridge in the development of this this beer in Jaipur. Uh, you know, they they weren't even hired by Thornbridge, as as you'll read in the book, to, to make that beer. It was to make a different beer. Jaipur is interesting because it the eight, it's not just the hops. It had lots of American hops, lots of aromatics, um, but it also had a higher ABV when brewers were already using American hops in, in golden ales and, and lower ABV cask ales. You know, think about Roosters, Yankee, or related to, to Thornbridge, Kellam Island, Pale Rider. And they're both in the book because I thought they were they were too important uh, not to include. Uh, but Jaipur really was like that uh, seeding of American influence because it wasn't scared of, you know, giving customers a five, nine beer, you know, 6% beer essentially, which is, you know, very un-British, unpintable. Although it didn't stop the people of Sheffield drinking many pints of it. Uh, and I still enjoy, when I find it on cask, enjoying a pint of it. Um but yeah, and you know that that kind of started the Brewdog story as well. You know, which is you know as I as I've said in a few other conversations, you know, I don't agree with everything Brewdog do. They're a very challenging company, but um, largely what they went on to do with in terms of punk, um, in, and uh, it, it set a platform for the industry. The scale and speed at which they grew developed what we have now in terms of beer in a way that we wouldn't have. Uh, it would have happened eventually, but I think they sped it up. Um, it, you know, they were a catalyst, so it's impossible to really s- to sidestep around them. Uh, so I just, you know, they're, they're there at the beginning. Okay. You're obviously very um, careful not to call it craft beer. Um, and in fact, you do have a chapter where you define modern British beer. So t- talk us through how you came up with that definition just a lot a lot of sat in in con- quiet contemplation a lot of sleepless nights so i think the term craft beer is a really great term but i didn't want to use it because it's so argued over you know and I, you know if you consider i was writing this book for camera for their for their publishing arm and you know people at camera still can't agree if cask cast beer and real ale is craft beer. Of course it is. It all is. But because of this looseness, I was like, what I want to do is, you know, I want to use this term modern beer because that's, you know, that's what I'm grounding the book in, in this, in this term, in this title, which initially, you know, there there was just, that was what I wanted to call it. And there were discussions initially about changing the title and and make, you know, call it like modern craft beer or what, something like that. Um, But no, I really wanted to set it apart because, Firstly, I wanted to write this definition to try and uh, 
avoid making the same mistake as as we did when we started using the word craft beer in the UK, which has never really been agreed upon. And while the definition I wrote for modern British beer, and I don't want to give too much away because I want people to read the book, but sure. you know, I, 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 the, what I did was like come up with five things that I feel um, is reflective of what I would expect of a modern brewery now. So, you know, it talks about uh, sustainability in the environment. It talk, regionality plays a huge part in the book, um, which, you know, that became evident when I started researching it and how, you know, how we've gone from a few hundred breweries to a, over 2000 breweries and, and regional identity is becoming more and more important to these small breweries so they can stand out and support their communities. Um, and then it, you know, one, one of the simple parts of that definition is, is the beer has to taste delicious because the whole point, the whole theory of modern British beer is that we drink beer because it makes us happy because it sparks joy. Um, and, and, you know, it, where that came from is, is it's a philosophy. That's, that's how I, the only way I can describe it. Just the book isn't based on a few months of research. It's based on my experience as a, as a writer for the last 10 years, as a drinker for the last 20 plus years, you know, and it's also, it's very important. And I say this in the book that it's my perspective as, as a, as a millennial, I'm an older millennial, you know, I'm nearly 40, but I am a millennial and I, I have embraced that identity and there aren't a lot of books about beer in this way by people my age about it's the first kind of millennial looking back at how beers changed book really. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's where the definition comes from. A lot of thinking about that. And, you know, there's a five point definition and I actually thought about it, you know, a few weeks after I submitted the book that there probably isn't a brewery in the book that ticks all five points on the definition it's the definition is very aspirational about what beer should strive to be in terms of, of, of how it approaches the, the business, the industry, um, the environment and, and the drinker. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a difficult challenge being a modern business. And that's, it's almost there as like a challenge, like, yeah, come on. Like this is, this is what we should be doing as an industry. If we want to be perceived as modern. Yeah. And it's lovely as well that they're obviously, you know, I, I guess people would perhaps look at the title and assume that you are talking about breweries that have only been around in the last decade. But actually, there are still quite a few that uh, have been around for a lot longer, um, but have obviously uh, kept up with the times and are producing beer that, as you say, fits in with, with your definition. Yeah, it's funny because like the original long list of beers 80 was what i planned to do um and then i came up with a list of like 250 nearly 300 beers and breweries and some of them were like you know landlord was on there at one point and i was like no that's a traditional beer so that finding a point a, a date was really difficult because i said it as like okay i want the last 20 years and then you get to 2000 and there's certain key beers like marble lagonda was you know from in the nineties had to be in there. And then the more research I did, the more stories I uncovered, I think, you know, black sheep is a, is a brewery I'm very fond of. And like the interview I did with them, with Joe Theakston was really fascinating because they kind of did the whole craft beer rebellion thing, like, like 10, 15 years before everyone else. And if you, and it was so 
I followed that story and I, you know, they're a brewery from the nineties and it's about breaking up, you know, Theakstons were being bought by Scottish in Newcastle, later Heineken. Um, and, and it was about one of the Theakston brothers breaking away as a rebel and then producing a product that instead of was being for value was being for using the most premium ingredients it could. And then it was disrupting on the supermarket shelves because it looked different. I'm like, hang on this, it's in there because it's like all of this has happened before and it will happen again. And people always try to take ownership and say, we did this. And I think stories like that really ground it, but that, you know, there, there was, I did get to a point where I had to stop going back because it's modern British beer, not traditional British beer. And there was actually a beer that was in, and I wrote it and it, I actually cut it out, um, was a uh, hot back summer lightning. And I'm, Sure, at some events I'll do, people will say, why isn't Summer Lightning in there? That beer was like a game changer. And you know what? It was, I did so much research on that beer and I realized it was not, it didn't feel like a beginning of something. It felt like an end of, this is where traditional British beer kind of, you know, kind of overlaps, but it was still using all British ingredients. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was trying to capture a consumer that was, uh, drifting to lager rather than going, I want to make a delicious beer. And then that's why you look at, I think Rooster's Yankee might be the the oldest beer in the book, either that or Kellam Island Pale Rider. But this was like people go, getting hold of like American Cascade for the first time and going, this is mad. Let's use this. People, A lot of people didn't even like those beers when they first came out yeah. um, because they were just too bitter and too floral. Um, well, so, the, same, the same could be said of uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale though in America. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's from 1978 really, but, um, you know, in the seven, I talk about cameras influence as well and how that, you know, that was revolutionary at the time. Uh, but yeah, the early nineties felt like the right place. If you consider that initially I was going to cut it off at 2000 and I kept going back, I had to get to a point where I just go, no, this, this is where the book starts. And then more, you know, these, this, the older beers are in there to, to ground a lot. Some, some of the things that I say, you know, and also to just make sure that some of the newer brewers are like, realized they weren't here first. They didn't, weren't the first people to do this as, you know, as some of the older breweries in the book weren't, but uh, yeah. modernity is a, f- a funny thing, isn't it? It's like, um, as I said in a previous interview, the book's going to go out of date. Like well, it's already out of date because, you know, it's, we're, all, we're always moving on. So it's, it's a marker. Yeah. And of course that's thanks to Reese at Don Zoko uh, for, <laughs> for moving so your regionality area, you know, you've got you've got the book in in different regions and the ups and <laughs> leaves the uh, the north northeast to uh, to set set up in Scotland. Well, yeah, uh, Reese, I did. There is that did happen. There is an. I'm just checking it went in the book. No, there, there is an addendum. Old, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. only addendum that managed to make it in the book. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he Reese. Um. I wrote about big foam, uh, which is. It's a, it's a foamy, rustic lager beer, really fantastic beer that is very uh, of of what he does. And also it's a tribute to his hometown of Hartlepool and the banked beers, uh, which, you know, it's a dispense, you, you know, where you see those huge foamy pints. You don't really see that anywhere else in the country. And then, but yeah, he moved to Leith when he, he shares the, same brewery as New Barns. Uh, they're all using the same equipment. They're all they're all good pals. Have been for a long time, but I did interview him just before it went to print, and he didn't rule out 
one day returning to to that part of the world you know he, you know if, he was he's very much uh, he, he's running Donzoko on his own and this was finally a chance to get a physical uh brewery of his own he could work on and and then i imagine what will happen with Donzoko now is he will start growing and 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 you know employ people um and, that, and that's that now he's got all this room and, and capacity so uh like yeah it's as i just said it's a, it's a marker um i don't feel bad about still including Donzoko in the northeast section though because he was based there when i when i originally wrote the book and he he is from hartlepool and and his beers are uh, you know characteristically of the northeast yeah uh, uh, and so so he still fit in in that sense. It's, yeah, in in that sort of philosophical sense, he's not physically in in Hartlepool anymore, but he he is of Hartlepool, and the, yeah. I think his beer is as well. Absolutely, and of course, uh, as you said, he's gone to New Barns, uh, and of course, that's run by uh, a good pal of yours. Yes, Johnny, indeed. Who's uh, also your collaborator on Pellicle. Johnny, Johnny, and I go way back. Um, I first I first met him when he was at Harriet Watt. Uh, studying his masters in brewing and distilling and he came down to london uh but yeah him along with um gordon and emma and, and freddie at, at new barns are doing some really exciting beers and yet and johnny and i've been running pellicle now for two and a half years which is mad um and we've got lily Waite and katie mather on our editorial team as we call it although you know that makes us sound a lot more uh like professional than we we are um it, it, it what I love about Pellicle is it's people think it's really like slick and and which is shows we're doing our job well, but it's it's just so DIY. It's it's it, it, it behind the scenes. It's 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 like it's like people photocopying zines to hand out a, a concert. We're we're the modern equivalent of of that kind of of publishing. That's that's how I see us. Don't ruin the image. Don't ruin the image. People, you know, they don't need to know that. They don't need to know that. <laughs> Um, I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, did you go back and taste every one of the beers that's in the book? Um, picking the, the beers that made the cut. Um, so, when, while I was writing the book, I, I can't say I drank all eighty six of them in like like just sat down and drank them all. Some of the beers in the book I'm I'm very familiar with. They're like fate, like being my book. The beers are in there because they're beers that I I really liked. Um, but there are some beers that I did, uh, you know, I did sit down with and, and revisit. Um, Plum Porter was an interesting one. Um, I really wanted a beer. I, I tried to, I, I didn't get everywhere in the country. Um, there are some gaps, but I wanted to try and give as broad a perspective of the UK as possible. And I really wanted a beer from the Stoke-on-Trent area. And Titanica, I think they're an important beer. And I, I have a real soft spot for Plum Porter. And and, it, and now I live in the northwest. It's a lot easier to to find. It's on. It seems to be on cask everywhere. Uh, I like to go. Um, and some people I go drinking with don't understand why I like it. But for, I'm like, this is this is a precursor to the pastry stout. You know, it's very deliberately in the book near the neon raptor centaur army, thirteen percent peanut butter imperial stout. Yeah, because I, you know I don't see them. They're they're, they're like one. Uh, one generation away from each other in terms of the evolution of, of that sweet stout style for me that they have that same appeal. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of the beers in the book are ones that I am 
um, mercilessly familiar with, uh, you know, picked out of, out of, there's a, there's a selfishness to, to the beers that, that went in the book because they're the beers I like drinking. But I think that also makes for a more engaging book because if I was writing a book about beers that I wasn't really into, it kind of wouldn't fit my, my definition considering at the start, I say all the beers have to be delicious. Very true. One of the breweries in there, um, a, uh, a friend of the podcast, one that I've uh, interviewed. Oh, it's nice to see, by the way, I've counted up 13, 13 of your beers, uh, uh, your breweries I've had on the podcast. Fantastic. And there's a good, I, I, I shudder to think of the number that I'm targeting and hoping for in future. Uh, but Utopian uh, are one that I've, uh, I've, I've spoken to. And there are a lot of... Uh, styles represented in the book which is great to see lager is one of those styles now that probably for the last five or six years in terms of of growing uh, popularity uh, amongst craft beer drinkers um you know lagers are are coming back because we do have some wonderful breweries you you've also got braybrook in there too um and some wonderful breweries brewing such interesting and nuanced uh lagers utopian you know, I'm thinking it's it is true British because the ingredients are all British, but the inspirations of their beers uh, are, of course, from Austria, Germany, you know, Czech Republic, um, and a lot of cases they're not modern uh, at all because Jeremy loves his uh, ancient German textbooks. But I guess that as it's their interpretations of these old styles and as they're using 100% British ingredients you know, it, it does actually make it modern British beer. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of the beer in there is is based on historical styles. Like if you if you uh, look at Colonel Export India Porter, that is a recipe from the 19th century and, and Evan O'Reard and the founder talked about how as a home brewer, he had this sort of manual that he was you know, reproducing these old recipes from them. That export India porter, you t- you taste that and taste the hoff aromatics and the sort of treacly malt, and like, wow, this is this is an incredible beer. It's so groundbreaking, but it's you know, it's based on a recipe from the 19th century, albeit with access to ingredients grown today, which 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 don't taste the same. And if you also think about the processes and equipment and and skills and knowledge we have today, that you know, that's as as important as the as the ingredients and, and the beer itself. I talk about how British beer is is a cultural melting pot. There's a lot of love for cask in there because I love cask beer and I love traditional British beer. And there's some really great, you know, as much as you say there are some lagers in there, there's some bitters in there as well that that I really love. But if you look at something like um, the Utopian, yes, it, you know, they're taking the classic Vienna lager style um, and then putting a twist on it with all British ingredients. Well, that, that, that twist, they use British ingredients because of the sustainability, you know, their, their, their beer has got less air miles on it. That's modern brewing. I, I also like largely, I think a lot of the way I talk about modernity is it's, it's about going back to, to this small batch, making beer for, for flavor over, over profit. You know, I talk about the industrial revolution and how so much beer was, produced as a capitalist pursuit as a, as a, you know, although people are still buying and enjoying beers made for that reason. A lot of the smaller breweries are, are investing in, in producing the best beer they can when they could make beer, they could make more money if they maybe cut back on 
you know, certain ingredients or processes. Um, and so that, that is modern, you know, for me, a modern thinking is if you look at utopian and, and their investment in the best equipment, the skills of, of Jeremy, their brewmaster, um, and then looking at like, how can we be more sustainable? Okay. We're going to use British ingredients because we think they're, they taste great. And we, you know, we don't want to have all that, those air miles from hops flown in from, uh, from Yakima in, in, the United States or, or from Germany. And again, like malt, a lot of malt comes from Bamberg and, and Franconia and it's all being flown over it. And, you know, we, we grow exceptional malt here in the UK. Um, so that, that's why I think Utop- Utopian are a great example. Actually, they're one of the last breweries to go into the book. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot, there is, you make a good point. There is a lot of lager in there and some like black isle blonde, I was writing about that beer for it and I didn't realize that beer kind of started out as a blonde ale and evolved into a lager. Um, but one day I think I'm going to have to line up all the lagers in that book and drink them all at the same time because they all, they're all so different. And I think that just that it expresses the regionality and, and different variances. You know, even if you compared Lost and Grounded Keller Pills to, um, to Utopians Vienna and then maybe you got Braybrook, uh, Keller Lager, and you drank those three side by side, like, like wow, they taste different. You know, yeah. New Barns, Oat Lager, uh, and, and uh, Don Zoko, uh, Big Foam, they're, they're now made in the same facility, but they taste, they're made very differently and they taste very different. So, um, you know, that, it, like it's that's why I think the format works well. It's like I'm trying to argue that this is what modern British beer looks like. And on their own, these stories aren't particularly good at saying that but when it's when you put them all together it's like ah that makes sense now here's context so um that's yeah that's why it works for me yeah and i i'm totally with you on that um i it's it's funny how and you know talking to a lot of brewers and they all talk about how when they are you know when they've got a bit of downtime what they're looking for is a nice crushable lager um you know either one that they make or or usually something like augustina hellas and you know you do come full circle um you know years and years and years ago i drank the macro lagers because i didn't know better and there wasn't that much of a choice um then i started to see that choice i started to see those beers i started to evolve into you know into into wanting different styles I've gone all the way to the dark side, so to speak, and, you know, the, the heavy ones as well, big imperial stouts. But now I'm coming back around and I just, you know, there's nothing like one of those great lagers. I was at a, a beer festival on Saturday and Braybrook were there. They had two beers. They had the Keller Pills and they had a, a barbecue Hellas, which is like a smoked Hellas. And they were fantastic. Absolutely great. And, of course, the Thornbridge there with, were there with Lucas as well. Uh, so you know it was fantastic to be to be drinking those beers um, amongst so you know so many others. I want to get on to another kind of thing that's kind of mentioned quite a lot in uh, in sort of different chapters. You talk about some of the beers that have changed over the years, um, and the reason for that change tends to be the availability of the raw ingredients. Now, sometimes in in some stories, it's actually a, a fortuitous happening that that there's changed the beer perhaps for the best given that we've got uh, the, the the recent report on climate change saying that things are progressing a lot faster are you worried about how that 
how that's going to affect beer production? I think it's worth reassuring people that, you know, their, their favourite beers are not going to disappear overnight. But it's also worth thinking about climate change and, and um, especially as uh, a lot of the, the, the majority of hops in the world, about 40%. So about 80% of all hops are grown in the northwest of the US and in Germany. Um, and But the US overtook Germany um, within the last 10 years, but that, you know, it's now the, the largest hop producing nation and, and largely more brewers are demanding uh, varieties. You know, Citra is the most cultivated hop variety in the world now. And I remember, like, I remember when it first came out, that's when I first started blogging about beer. It was a brand new hop and brewers couldn't get hold of it for five years. And, and it was exchanging hands for silly sums of money so people could make IPAs. But uh, if you've followed the news over the last few weeks, you'll have seen that that the Pacific Northwest had record temperatures, um, and that is going to and the, and there's smoke as well, like smoke tank is a, is a thing, and and a lot of uh, barley is grown there. Not anything that will probably go into British beer production, um, but yeah, that is going to have long term effects. Now, bre- big breweries with hop contracts will, um, and when I say big, I actually mean sort of medium sized breweries as well, who contract their hops. And, and buy directly from the hop suppliers, they're going to be fine. Um, it, but you probably won't find that these more uh, experimental varieties won't trickle through to um, the smaller breweries. Um, and those breweries get, you know, not all citra comes out the same farm and tastes the same. So so bigger breweries get access to the, the higher quality hops. But, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's one of those things that, I'm writing about it at the moment. Like we really need to to look at the the beer supply chain. I'm not suggesting that all um, English breweries suddenly stop making beer with imported ingredients and just start making beers with English ingredients. There's no like the, England is only responsible for two percent of all the hops grown in the world. There's not enough English hops to go around, and half of English hops are exported. Uh, mostly to the US because the US has nine thousand breweries um, and a lot more and a lot more bigger breweries that want to use British hops for for bittering. But we do need to all breweries need to look at processes. Um, but ingredient procurement is just one step of sustainability in terms of of reducing that footprint. You know things like the amount of water that's used and how that water is the bigger brewery. You are the more um, uh, wastewater you're going to put back into the environment. You know, I use purity as an example in there because they have a reed bed system they built, so they can, they basically clean up their own water with, with a, a sustainable reed bed system where it's literally a series of ponds with with reeds that filter the water, and there's live bacteria in the water that eat all the uh, and it's just like I think four pools, and by the time it gets to the fourth pool. Uh, it's cleaner in every one, and number four is when it goes back into the the main drinking water supply. And more and more breweries are going to be building these. It's difficult for the inner city breweries. I think it's going to be a massive conversation over the next few years. Um, but I don't. I also don't think you're going to stop seeing wonderfully aromatic beers with 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 ingredients from all over the world because um, you know things. A lot of things are shipped all over the world. I think we need to start thinking about beer more like a food system. Uh, basically 
you know, if you look at coffee as an example, that is considered more like a food than, than, than beer and barley and hops are, uh, are, are food products. And so, uh, it's, it's what I'm thinking about a lot is, is how, how our use of the system is, is impacting, uh, the, the planet. Um, but uh, I don't want to scare anyone and think, oh no, that does that mean no more IPAs? Do, do, does that mean I want to? Go, I need to go to Oregon or Washington to have a hoppy IPA? It might do one day, but not 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 yet. But everyone should be thinking about it. And 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 a modern brewery, a modern British brewery, should should be thinking about it. Which I think Utopian are a great example, you know, and their decision to use all English ingredients and but the way that the way they use it to make traditional German and Czech beers that's that's fascinating to me. Okay, so uh, I've mentioned that I'm drinking uh, Jaipur. Um, you're drinking something that is a version of something that's in the in the uh, book. Yeah, as you said, you you've got a big article that you're working on at the moment, so you need to keep your wits about you. But um, tell us about what you're drinking and how that also relates to the book. I'm, I'm literally writing an article about what I just talked about, about the supply chain. Um, so I'm drinking a low ABV beer, Petite Saison from Burning Sky. Um, so Burning Sky, uh, are one of the best breweries, based in the village of Furl near Lewis in Sussex. So right down near the south coast. Um, the beer of theirs in the book is called Saison à la Provision, the, their flagship house Saison. It's like 6.5%, an amazing uh, fooder aged, so a large oak vat. So it's aged um, and it picks up all these sort of sour, tangy, white wine characteristics. Um, but recently, a couple of years ago, they started doing a sort of small version of it because Saison Provision is very easy to drink, um, uh, but it will put you on your back because it, it's strong, but Petit Saison is 3.5 and it's, it's a completely barrel aged mixed fermentation beer. So it's all aged in white wine barrels. Um, and it's a similar kind of profile to Saison Provision with kind of like fresh lemon, um, and sort of, it's not sour. It's like tangy, incredibly refreshing. It's a nice afternoon. So it's a lovely sort of summery beer. Um, and, it, it gives you that sort of similar experience to drinking Saison Provision. Um, but it's also significant that I'm drinking Burning Skies beer because I actually went down to brew a beer with them uh, to, to celebrate the launch of the book. So hopefully if you've got a good independent bottle shop or bar near you uh, that stocks Burning Sky, they'll get hold of this beer. It's called the Broad Spectrum of Joy, which is the f- name of the first chapter in the book. And the first chapter is essentially my philosophy on, on why we drink and enjoy beer and I which, which my philosophy is called the broad spectrum of joy um and uh, I wanted to brew a beer that was kind of basically my version of of that joyfulness like a beer I would reach for if I saw it on the shelf um so I wanted to brew what I consider an Anglo-American pale ale west coast so Californian west coast so bitter beer um my favorite hops are Simcoe and Amarillo, which gives you sort of mango and orangey notes. Um, Burning Sky had some really good mosaic, and that's a fantastic hop that also works really well with Simcoe and Amarillo. So we we uh, use mosaic as well. Um, so that was the hops for Aroma, and it was dry hop with those hops as well. Uh, Magnum, uh, which is a German hop, was the bittering hop to give it that big West Coast bitterness. Um, but the barley, uh, we used Marisotta, 
uh, from Chris Maltings in, in East Anglia. Uh, so pale, an extra pale Maris Otter. So it gives you that lovely golden color, that kind of biscuity flavor. But as a twist, um, the beer uses about 15% spelt. So spelt is a heritage grain um, that's related to wheat. And I talk a lot about the agriculture of barley and wheat and hops in the book and how I think we're going to be talking, you know, we already have been on this podcast, but we're going to have a lot more conversations about the the agriculture of beer and the fact that beer is not brewed. It is before it's brewed, it's grown. Uh, and that's something I'm, I'm, uh, I, I really explore in the book and the fl- I like the flavors of these ingredients and I like spelt because when you use that in a beer, you can really taste it. It adds an almost nutty quality. Um, I've not had the beer yet. I will be having it my first pint in a couple of days. Um, but uh, it's uh, hopefully have this lovely sort of biscuity, nutty, dry character with loads of, of juicy citrus and tropical fruit uh, and a nice bitterness. So it, it makes it sort of really Moorish. Uh, I'm really excited about it. And it, it's just, you know, I, I thought to myself, if I could brew a beer to celebrate the launch of this book with anyone, who would I, in the UK, would I do it with? And, and Mark Tranter, he's a good friend, but also a hero of mine, really, in terms of the story of British beer. He was at Dark Star Brewery uh, for 17 years, back in the early days when they were a brew pub in the Evening Star pub in Brighton. And he was one, the, one of the first British breweries to start a proper mixed fermentation barrel program. Um, and so, and has inspired so many um, breweries to to do that kind of brewing. But he also brews great cask beer, and they brew great uh, modern keg beer. They they do some lagers now. Um, they're a great example of a modern British brewery. So I couldn't think of anyone better to 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 make a beer with. I was very excited when they said yes. So the broad spectrum of joy, pale ale, will will be you know. If you're listening to this, it should be out there. So seek out a pint. Absolutely. I'm very excited to try and find it myself. So, I mean, what was it like? You obviously mentioned that Mark is uh, a a hero of yours. What was it like brewing with him? I I assume this is the first time you've you've brewed with with Mark, is it? It's. um, I've known Mark for a few years. It's the first time I I say brewed. I stood around and took photos while, (laughs) uh, uh, I mean, Big shout out to 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 Tom and Luke and Claudia and the gang at Burning Sky. I've known those guys for a long time, and and they and they did most of the hard work. While me and Mark uh, recorded a podcast and then went to the pub for lunch. That's um, it's yeah. Um, I've been I've been down to the brewery there in Furl um, a, a few times now. Uh, it's where they filmed Bake Off of all places. Uh, it's a be- beautiful, picturesque village but lewis the town it's where harvey's are based um and it's i don't know i i like going there at least once a year i love the vibe of the town uh it, it's quaint it's got a little bit of weirdness it's beautiful the pubs are amazing so uh, yeah it's and you're in the south downs you're like right in the middle of a national park so you've got all these rolling hills around you it's yeah. just an amazing part of the world to visit um sure. so it's, it it was kind of an excuse and they're good friends of mine, so, you know, make beer with good friends, enjoy some nice pints. And that was actually, it was the first, it was about three weeks ago now, but it was the first big bit of travel I'd done. I used to travel, you know, pre-pandemic times so much. And I have been to London once, but this is, you know, this is a four and a half hour train journey. So it's 
it was interesting to like get back out in the world. It was it was good for the confidence, I think. Um, yeah. So I assume that traveling is going to become a part of my life again. Um, Especially with your book, sir, coming out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I want to get around to, you know, as much as it'd be nice, and I will be appearing in bigger cities like Sheffield and and uh, in London and Bristol and, and whatnot, I hopefully will get out to some some uh, smaller places like I'm I'm going to be in Harrogate for Harrogate Beer Week and uh, and, do, and do an event with Roosters um, and I'm hopefully going to go to the Siren Tap Room because uh, Siren and Elusive are on the same industrial estate, literally opposite each other. So and they're both in the book. Uh, they're both really important in the book, and so it'd be great to do an event at their tap yard. Um, so trying to get off the beaten trail. I think I've got something scheduled for Reading, something for Southampton. Um, so we'll just see where I end up. Um, I think, I think Kendall might be on the, on the cards. So, um, wh- wherever will have me really, as, as long as I can sell some books, <laughs> I'm very motivated. Excellent. So anybody listening wants to go along, they just need to look at, uh, your, your website or the Pelico website. Just, um, uh, I'll probably put it on Pellicle, yes, but just follow me on Twitter and Instagram. That's the best thing to do. I'm at Total Curtis um, on on both, and I will be announcing repeatedly what I'll be up to. But um, I think um, I've got the first one I'll be doing is at my most local beer bar on the 9th of September. Um, I'm going to be at Station Hop in Levenshume, which is where I live in South Manchester. And uh, Amanda, the owner there, said, would you like to do a, a, an event here? And I thought that'd be a really nice way to, that'd be the first one I do. Mm. Um, and, and it'll be local and, and quite small, about 20 people. Um, and then, uh, and then I've got Harrogate booked for later in the month and I'll just, and I'll just uh, book them as they come. I wanted to do like a proper tour where I went on the road, but um, uh, I, I'm not resourced enough to just abandon <laughs> my responsibilities and, and, and travel around the country. So I'll, I'll, I'll be popping up. That, that's it'll be more like a pop-up thing right, uh, right. but i will be out and about over the next few months excellent and i guess it was like reading chapters from the book yeah i i think i'll be um every little event will be a beer tasting we'll we'll have some beers uh they might not be from the book they might just be beers that i i quite fancy tasting on that evening but they'll be related to modern british beer i think it's important to say that like i picked 86 beers in the book but that's not a be all and end all yeah. uh it's their case studies rather than these are the only ones you know that's not the case they're they're uh, you know there's a there's two thousand breweries in the country uh to explore uh yeah but, and i'll be reading a passage relevant to the area i'm in and uh you know and then just asking answering people's questions like uh, uh, you know as your listeners are, are discovering i love to talk and uh, <laughs> i've always got an answer to a question so uh, I'm, I'm, I actually used to do quite a lot of tastings before the pandemic, and I'm actually really looking forward to getting back out and uh, and doing some face to face against face to face events again. Yeah, well, I look forward to hopefully you being near me sometime, and I'll uh, pop down and and watch that. Uh, right, so I am now delving into another beer. Um, and it is the Colonel Export India Porter. So I'm going to pour this. I'm very, very happy to, as I told you before we started recording, I'd ordered some of the beers that were in your book. And um, unfortunately, 
the timing of the delivery meant that actually they were arriving. Actually, they arrived during just as we were about to start. Um, but of course, they're not cold. But I found that I didn't even realize I had a bottle of the Colonel Export India Porter, which is brilliant because I absolutely love the beer and I love the brewery. When I'm talking to brewers and other breweries, um, inevitably it comes around to the Colonel. We're usually talking about either about the beers or maybe something like branding, because obviously they have the, you know, incredibly simplistic but you know inspired branding, um, and it always feels wrong to be waxing lyrical about another brewery when you're actually talking to you know when you're talking to a different brewery and it's kind of you know their chance on the podcast kind of thing. I always kind of, you know, we inevitably talk about them because they love the brewery as well. Um, but it always makes me feel quite bad that we're sort of talking about this brewery and how great they are. But of course, now I don't have that issue. You're making me very jealous, actually, because um, I have to uh, get back to work after we finish recording this, hence my my single low ABV beer. Oh, I do have some duration. <laughs> when I finish my article, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open uh, some duration beers and relax in the evening. But um uh, the Colonel are one of the most important breweries in the history of modern British beer. Um, and, you know, I, I, especially to me personally, as someone who, when craft beer was exploding, I was living in London and everyone was like, you've got to try this beer. And, you know, this the, the first uh, Colonel labels, they've always had the brown paper level, labels, but they used to be hand-stamped. Um, uh, and... It's remarkable. I mean, I think their beers have just got better and better. They're they're a bit bigger than most people think. I think they've got about thirty staff. You know, uh, it, it's they, they don't shout as loud as a lot of other breweries. They don't need to. They just do their thing. But you know, they make quite a bit of beer. Um, and it, you know, choosing a beer for them was interesting because, as as we mentioned, it's not just you know, it's not just a load of pale ales and IPAs, and it would have been easy to do that i think every almost every brewery in the book makes popular pale ales and ipas but that would have been boring for me writing it boring for the reader and i really wanted to invest in different styles um so there's deliberately a lot of darker beers in there there's brown ales porters and stouts there's some ambers that are in there there's some barley wines you know there's some wheat beers there's some saisons there's some belgian wit beers you know it was all part of if it's to be considered an argument, the book, then I needed a good range. Um, and I love all these different styles. And when it put the kernel, you know, I could have written about table beer. I could have written about one of their amazing IPAs or pale ales. I could have written about their, their, you know, something like uh, the uh, Saison de Pêche. I'm sorry, that's a burning sky beer, but you know, uh, the beer de Saison, uh, which they do with peaches or apricots, um, you know, they're, they're 750 mil bottles, there was so much to choose from, but I thought their dark beers are some of the most exceptional beers they make. And then, the, you know, there's Imperial Brown Stout. But, you know, you talked as well about did you drink all the beers before you wrote the book? And I can remember the last time I had Export India Porter because it was on my last visit to the tap room as a Londoner. And it was just as we were coming out of that summer lockdown. So it would have been uh, maybe August, September, 2020. So just before I moved to Manchester and uh, Moritz, the, the bar manager there, um, poured me a, an export India Porter and it was so exceptional. 
And so when it came to deciding the beer of the kernels to go in the book, it was based on that memory, that taste, that experience, the last time I went to the tap room, because that felt like it would be a more enjoyable thing to write about and a more interesting thing. And as, you know, Evan says, <laughs> it's a wonderful quote at the start of that piece where he says, I don't think this beer really represents us as a brewery. And then there's a pause and then like, actually, I don't think any, any beer does. That's not, that's not what we're trying to do. And it's so wonderfully kernel, such a, they're sort of like anti-capitalist in the way they work. They just, they just do their thing. Um, and what I love about, uh, you know, if you juxtapose the kernel next to Brewdog, you know, roughly this open within about 18 months of each other. And they, they're so, both of them are so integral to the way we think and talk about modern beer in the UK right now, but they're, they're, they're chalk and cheese. Oh, um, and that, <laughs> but that's why the, that's why the kernel is so important. And I love that the kernel people still go, Oh, the kernel, they're so underrated and they're not underrated by anyone. They're just not on social media shouting about themselves. They just make beer. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful philosophy, you know, burning sky, I think are a little like that. You know, I see them in the same, same light in a, in a way, um, just making the beers that they, they enjoy. Uh, you know, if you, if you consider my, my theory of we drink beer because it makes us happy, the, the Colonel and burning sky make beer because it's the beers they do because it makes them happy. And that, that's a, it's a nice way to be. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I I do feel that the kernel could be so much bigger. They could have expanded so much more than they have at the moment. Obviously, you said they they're probably bigger than most people think they are in terms of employees. Um, but they just, I guess, they've got to a point where they they're happy being at the size they are and and producing what they're producing. And you have to respect that, and you have to. You say, you know, I mean, it's great for some breweries to be growing and growing and growing. Obviously, Brewdog is one you mentioned, you know, that they're the obvious ones you think of when you think of a brewery um, expanding at an exponential rate. Um, But it's lovely to see a brewery, as you say, focusing just on producing that amazing beer. Absolutely. You know, there comes a point when a brewery is growing, you know, where that growth if you want to put more tasty beer into more people's hands, there's a, there's a, there's a certain point where, you know, you become so big, it's it, and it becomes about how much money you're making, I guess. There's nothing wrong with, with that. I, I, I don't think it's a very wanting to be as big as possible. I actually don't think that's, that's very modern. I think wanting to make the best beer possible is, and I think, you know, we've, I used to be quite obsessed with watching breweries grow and very excited by it because it was this new, exciting thing. But now when a brewery expands, I always go, I always ask myself, why, why, like, like, why do they need to be bigger? Who is it for? What, what is the purpose? So, you know, it's, I think it's quite powerful what the Colonel do to get to that size and go, this is, this is enough. We're, we're done. We're at the size we want to be. We're, we're you know, putting uh, food on 30 people's tables and roofs over their head and giving them hopefully a good quality of life. And it's, you know, you see a lot other breweries like that who go, this is, this is enough. We don't want to be a monster. We, we can supply our community with beer that's enjoyable. Um, that that's, you know, I think that's, that's quite modern. That's, you know, I, I like that rather than this endless pursuit of more, 
um, who's it for? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I see a lot of the breweries that emerged in that period that aren't in the book who just have built these gargantuan breweries. And I ask myself, like, who, who is that beer for? What is it? What is it doing? Um, cause a lot of it for me starts just starting to look like a lot of the old breweries that we were trying to, uh, you know, turn against the big macro lager breweries. And, and I don't, I don't see much difference between, uh, them, uh, which is why I, you know, I really like investing in this idea of breweries that are focused on, you know, making great beer over making profit. Yeah. Although I, you know, don't begrudge anyone, you know, earning a living. <laughs> That's very important to, sure. to say. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying there. Uh, right, so I, I want to come on to something else that uh, shows up quite a lot in the book as well. And it's, uh, it's one word, I'm just going to say one word, sparklers. <laughs> you've got to have them. You've got, you've got to have them. Well, what I want you to do, Matt, is I want you to uh, enlighten the southernness amongst us to the delights of a sparkler. So a sparkler, I mean, it, it's it's... Uh, it's a nozzle that goes on the end of a swan neck when you pour a, a cask beer and all it, all it really does. And there's different uh, gauges with smaller holes, but essentially, you know, when you pour a cask beer, it comes out of one big hole into the glass, but a sparkler actually squeezes it through lots of little holes. And the effect this has is it breaks the bubbles up into smaller bubbles. So it makes the beer creamier. Um, I will, you know, I will say from the off, there are some beers that, I have tried sparkled that are made in the South, that are, you know, a proper pub beer. Think about Harvey's best is a good example of this. If you put it through a sparkler, it doesn't work. It's not designed for it. You know, um, Harvey's best is actually designed to be poured on gravity. That is how Miles Jenner, uh, the head brewer at Harvey's likes it to be poured. But no, it's, 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 if you go, I think Derby, I'm from Lincoln and Lincoln beers are served on a sparkler. So I think that sort of Derby, Lincoln, that's that sort of uh, north of Derbyshire. That's where they start to become the norm. I, except Cor- you go to Cornwall and they use sparklers in Cornwall because Cornwall would, is basically like northern in spirit. And Roger Ryman, uh, the dearly departed Roger Ryman at St. Austell was from Merseyside. And uh, when he went to become the head brewer at St. Austell, he, we took, he took the sparkler with him and to all of all of the St. Austell pubs, which are numerous in, in that part of the world. Um, but essentially it gives you a creamier pint. And I, when I first got into cask in a big way, so, and this would be the second, the comeback around, cause I was into cask and then I got into like us craft and then I, and I kind of turned my back on cask for a few years as a, a lot of people who got into craft beer in like the early 2010s did. It was part of the, the process of, of understanding beer and coming back around to cask. But when I came back around that second time, I was you know living in London and I didn't really understand the need for a sparkler. And it wasn't until I had a perfect sparkled pint, uh, which was in the Marble Arch, um, and it was their Earl Grey IPA. Because, because I was told by a lot of people who don't like sparklers uh, that um, it strips the aroma out of beer. And the only reason you use a sparkler is, some people will tell you, is to add condition. So when a beer has been on for a few days and it's losing carbon dioxide, the sparkler will excite the bubbles and give the beer a head. The, the truth is that, like, Bad condition is bad condition and a sparkler or no sparkler won't fix it. But a lot of people said that they also stripped out hop aroma from, from beers. And I say, come to uh, Manchester and you drink, 
drink a marble beer, drink Traxonoma or, or, you know, drink Traxonoma in somewhere like the City Arms in town or in the Magnet in Stockport um, or drink a Red Willow. Uh, there's a lot of Red Willow cask uh, around these days, you know, very, and that's dry hopped aromatic beer. No, the sparkler is not stripping out any, any aroma from that. These are vibrant and hoppy beers. Um, one thing I've noticed in the months I've lived up here is that the throughput of cask is much higher here than it was in London. And you would often see pubs with beers on three, four, five days, which is way too long for a cask beer. Um, and I had an experience recently where I went into a local pub uh, and I'd seen they had still had the same beer on. And I was like, oh, I would have had that on cask. But um, it's, it's been on for a couple of days, so I'll have something else. And they went, no, it's not, we, we have more than one cask. It's a fresh cask. We sort of, you know, and I'm like, oh, I will have that then. Um, I just, and I think um, maybe the sparkler has something to do with it. It certainly adds to the the quaffability. I, I've, I, you know, found myself in Port Street Beer House in the Northern Quarter on the Sonoma, which is 3.8, very pintable beer. And like within an hour, like realizing I'm halfway through my third pint, I'm like, you know, oh, the first few sips of that first pint, you're like, oh, this is delicious. Then you slip into conversation. I don't know. Uh, I'll be honest with you, Paul. I like the sparkler conversation is great because it's, it, it, it's, I find it really fun. It's a real wind up. And I think most people who have this debate realize they're are in on it. Like, like it's just a silly little plastic nozzle that represents uh, like how important, you know, coming about back to regionality, which I talk about a lot in the book, that is a wonderful example of that, that you can put your finger on. Like this is regionality. I loved sparkler. I love sparkled beer. I think I think that's the best way to serve cast beer, and that's how it should be served, with the occasional exception. Harvey's Best being one of the few examples uh, I would I would uh, give. Uh, maybe something like Gad's Number Three. These beers that have amazing condition and foam when they, when they're served, um, but uh, largely I think it, it's I love the the texture and aroma that you get from a from a sparkled beer that is in ripe condition just watching it settle in the glass. It's, it's, uh, it's a real joy. Okay, excellent. Uh, right, so uh, you mentioned that you are going to have some duration beers once you finished your article. I wanted to, um, to touch on them a bit. Obviously, they're in the book as well. Bet the Farm is the, uh, is the beer. Um, now, obviously, they've moved from you know, inner city to a rural location, and I think you do sort of touch on sort of themes of that in the book. Do you think that's the start of a trend, certainly for, for breweries, to start to move out to kind of more to more space, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Duration is a great example because uh, Bet the Farm is sort of, they put every penny they had uh, behind a, a pretty one-off brewery for life. It's not a massive brewery, but it is like, it's Braucon, which is one of the top German manufacturers. It's really high end. It's in this beautiful uh, refurbished medieval barn. It, it, it's a destination brewery. And I'm not saying that, that's, that everyone's going to be investing that level of money into, into that. But I do feel that there's a, there's a belief that modern beer, craft beer, if you will, is a city-centric thing. But the more I travel, uh, the more I see interesting beer bars popping up everywhere you know small towns and and the desire you know people the pandemic has accelerated this but people were already leaving the cities behind uh 
you know, um, most of my friends in London are moving out to like the South coast, uh, Johnny Garrett, another beer writers just moved to Hitchin, you know, people want to, people want to buy a ha- people my age, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z want to buy a house. None of us can afford to buy houses in cities. So we're all moving out. But then when we do, we'll want our creature comforts that we got used to. And I think having a great beer bar, if you're, if you're going out to a small town and the only beer, available beer is like an enterprise inns or punch, something like that, that you, know, you might get a pint of landlord, but it, it's not really that, you know, it's not, you're not going to get like a verdant or a day or something like that. And, and people are setting up on their own. They're opening bottle shops. Um, they're opening uh, micro pubs. This is happening everywhere. It be, it's because, you know, the, the idea of, you know, what I say right at the beginning of modern British beer is that beer in the UK has changed forever. And there's proof in that, in that you can go to most small towns and find a little beer bar that's got like 10 taps of the latest, most interesting stuff, as well as some nice cask, maybe. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's no longer this, you know, hipster was the word that was thrown around for so long at, when craft beer emerged in like Shoreditch in East London and in the Northern Quarter in Manchester, that kind of thing. But now, now it's like, this is a, a desirable thing. People want beer that tastes like this and, uh, you know, they don't want to have to travel into a big city to get it. Yeah. In terms of breweries, yes, because people are moving out of cities, there will be there'll be and people have a greater understanding of what modern beer is, uh, and there's the des- desire for it. You know, Bates and Miranda at Duration. I remember sitting with them around their coffee table and them going, um, "Do you think we're mad?" And I'm like, "No, this is brilliant." Like, I know it's cliche, but if you build it, they will come. There's such a like what they're doing is so great. Like that, everything they do is so considerate uh, or considered, I should say. And the beer is is exceptional. Uh, the beer I've got, um, I'm going to drink after this, is the Cutting Grass Pilsner, which is an Italian-style Pilsner, which is yeah. dry hot pills based on the Birificio Italiano Tipo Pils, um, which is a wonderful beer. But this, it's become a really in vogue style this this uh, uh, this summer, um, and and it's just such a such a delicate uh, but delicious beer. Um, so yeah. That I think you'll see, not in not necessarily just in that part of the world, but all over the country, people like opening these destination breweries. Um, you know, even I wouldn't be surprised if uh, larger successful craft breweries will find a small town with a desire for beer and open a, a brew pub. Even you know, you, you can look at um, other half in New York City as as a if you look, want to look at a trend happening ahead of what might happen in the UK. I think the other half have opened like five brew pubs now, Washington, DC, Philadelphia, upstate New York. So that, that is, that is the, the future model won't be let's build the biggest brewery we can. It's like, let's build a little brewery for this community. If people are going to be really into it. So Fantastic. yeah, that, it's, it's, it's going to be exciting to see uh, that. That's, that's my prediction for, for the next 10 years or so. Right. Okay, wonderful. Uh, okay, so uh, I do something on the podcast where I get the previous guest to ask a question of the next guest. Uh, and so you have the last episode was my birthday episode. Uh, just I don't, and I, there was the first one I recorded in person as well, which was amazing. 
uh, Rush from Hopstop in Rygate, which is uh, the bottle shop and bar where we recorded. Uh, he has a question for you, so bear with me a sec. Um, I've been there. They've got they my said, photos hanging on the wall. They said that, yeah, they said that you did the photos there. Yeah. Yeah, they, they uh, when they were opening, they got in touch and said, can we buy some prints of your photos? And uh, and I had a whole disaster with delivery, so I got on the train with the with the photos uh, and, and hand-delivered them. Excellent. That was when you were in London, obviously. Yeah, yeah. A lot, not a lot easier than, than yeah, now. Yeah, I wouldn't do that now. And it's a great uh, example of what I was just talking about, about, about places like that opening everywhere. And Hopstop, is, that, that Rygate bar is excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Right, okay. So uh, here is Rush asking his question. Yeah, so so snacks is one thing we are trying to innovate on. We've got a kitchen, but we don't want to go full-blown food. Um, so, yeah, a, the question to the next guest would be, in terms of a, a, the, the best snack you can imagine to have with beer, uh, what would that be? The best snack to have with beer? Well, it, the answer yeah. is scampi fries or a pickled egg. But okay. I, I have a... Um, a more uh, serious answer. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, I went to Clitheroe uh, in Lancashire, about an hour north of Manchester, to my friend Katie and Tom's bar, Corto. And they're, they're, they're quite inspired by sort of uh, Spanish bars where snacking is is the norm. And each bar will do its own snacks that is served with, with the beers. And a Corto is the smallest measure of beer you can get. Um, and uh, I'm going to do there's two options. I think it's really important to have a veggie or vegan option. Uh, that That's crucial. But they did um, a, a panna con tomato. So it's like just sourdough bread with like uh, like a warm tomato spread with olive oil and salt. Um, and then you can get it with an anchovy. Uh, and I love anchovies. So like the, the sort of acidity of the tomatoes and the bread – so the bread soaks up the alcohol. The tomatoes have that nice sweetness and acidity, bit of olive oil, and then the anchovy gives you that saltiness. So easy to make. Like um, you probably have to do a little bit of prep in making the tomato sauce, but then it's ready to heat up and spread on the the nice warm bread. And then you just drop a nice anchovy, and and tin fish is really really trendy right now. High end tin fish, uh, apparently I'm told, and uh, so it's a high end anchovy. And it's just so I, I was sat there several beers deep eating that as like a rather than like having a meal, like I need a snack uh, and they have a snack menu. I'll, I'll order this panic on tomato. And that's like, that is great. And the saltiness just made me want to, to drink more to wash it down. But every mouthful was delicious. So, um, you know, that's yeah, that's what uh, I'd like to see in terms of like simple, simple snacks but the ones that make me want to want to drink. Okay. Well, brilliant answer. Uh, so of course, you know, that, that that now means that you need to set a question for my next guest. Okay. My question for the next guest is in my book, modern British beer, you'll have to hopefully have read it. Um, <laughs> I come up with a five point definition uh, of what I'm thinking of this on the spot, but like I, so I come up with a five point definition. What would be your sixth point? If you wanted to expand the definition, what would be your extra point to define modern British beer? Okay, wonderful. Well, I will put that to my next guest, and uh, <laughs> hopefully sure they've read the book. <laughs> and hopefully they've read the book. 
At least yeah. the first, you don't have to read the first two chapters, so not the whole thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, that's a brilliant question. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, Matt, it's been fantastic talking to you about the book. And, you know, the book is amazing as well. You said earlier on that you're, you know, you're, you're on cloud nine uh, about it, and, and rightly so. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much, Paul. Like, it's true. I have not come down from the ceiling. It'll be a long time before I do. Um, I'm sure, you know, everyone's been really positive about it so far. I'm sure there'll be some people who don't agree with it. And, and that moment, I'm ready for it. I've prepared myself for it. But um, I, I'm I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And to anyone listening who's really enjoyed it, thank you for, for buying it. Um, like, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite a ridiculous feeling. Uh, so, but thank you so much for having me on the show for the second time. Uh, it's been... Yeah been a real pleasure um no the pleasure has been all mine um thank you so much uh and yeah i mean you know when i'm in my travels you know obviously you've got your travels to come as well so we might uh, meet for a pint on one of those but um i do definitely intend to come up manchester way so when i'm up that way perhaps we can meet for a pint or, or if I do make it down to, to Rygate uh, or the South. Yeah. But yeah, let me know if you're in Manchester. I mean, like, I, I'm a kid in a candy shop here. I, I, whenever I go into town, uh, I'm s- smiling from ear to ear. It's it's quite a quite a beer scene uh, up here and so much sparkled bitter for me to to relish. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I know I definitely want to try the sparkled beer. And I think as we, as we said on uh, Twitter when we were talking, I don't know if you remember, uh, it would be great to sample sparkled and non-sparkled side by side. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we can find a pub who would uh, grumpily unscrew a sparkler, so you can uh, <laughs> yeah. you can realise why the sparkled one is better. Just to find out, it'd be yeah, <laughs> purely for experimental purposes, of course. of course. Brilliant. Okay. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Paul. Cheers. Cheers. Great to talk with Matt, and the book is absolutely brilliant. Well worth getting, along with a selection of beers from the book so that you can taste along while you read. Uh, A reminder of where to get it. The Camera Website webshop has it for sale direct. Also, local independent booksellers, as well as some larger ones like Waterstones. Uh, Some local independent bottle shops and breweries, especially those featured in the book, Um, And from Matt himself, if you spot him around town in Manchester, I think he carries a stock of them in his backpack with a little card machine and a Sharpie to autograph it for you. He's also going on his book tour, as he mentioned during the podcast. So keep your eye on his socials at Total Curtis on both Twitter and Instagram for details of where you can go and see him in person, um, hear him reading from the book and possibly even buy a copy as well. And as uh, Matt also mentioned, his Burning Sky collaboration beer, Broad Spectrum of Joy, brewed especially to celebrate the publication of the book, is currently available from all good independent stores and, of course, from Burning Sky themselves. Right, let's have a look at some of the recent beers I've been having. Focusing on Anspach and Hob Day's Beddington Farm Beer Festival, held at their Croydon Taproom. Lots of great breweries were pouring there, from the hosts themselves to Elusive Brewery, Brew York, Thornbridge and lots more. I got there around 1pm and delved straight into a lager, Braybrook's Keller Lager, moving on to Solvay Society's Belgian IPA called Exotic Physics and South London's Bullfinch Brewery's APA Wolf. Uh, After some food from street food vendors Dirty Crunch, 
I was on to Elusive Brewing's Fragula, Wild Weather's Orange Lazarus and Thornbridge's Lucas. Things went up a notch with Brew by Numbers Chinook and Centennial Triple IPA, then Pandemonium, a black IPA from Elusive Brewing and Anspach and Hobday, at Drop Project's Halcyon and the Cronks's Pop-Up. Was I done with those? Nope. Brew York's Hopperator Error, Braybrook's Barbecue Hellas, Orbit's Salinity Baltic Porter, and another wild weather beer, Banana Bomb, then Elusive's Exosphere, and finally two from the hosts, the third variant IPA and the glorious London Black. Uh, it's safe to say that I'm very glad to have been picked up and taken home as I don't know if I'd have really been able to find my own way home. It was great being at a festival again and to chat with festival goers and brewery staff alike, including Jack from Anspach and Hob Day, my guest on the Christmas special episode, plus Andy Parker from Elusive and Ian from Wild Weather, as well as Charlie from Thornbridge. Uh, a sore head was had the following day. Uh, I also made a couple of taproom trips recently, first off to the Western Brewery, as I wanted to pick up some of their Hannah and Triple Trouble beers. When I got there, I thought it'd be rude not to stop for a quick two thirds of Triple Trouble and a great fish finger sandwich from the food van of the day, Hook and Cook. Uh, I had a great chat with brewery owner Robert Wicks on the way out, as well as their social media manager, Shay. Uh, then I went down to the South Coast at the weekend to visit some friends, and we went to the Beak Brewery Tap Room in Lewis. I enjoyed a few of their beers, Strangers, Locals, and Parade, as well as a Mosaic and Cascade IPA from their guest brewery, The Colonel. I'm off to Yorkshire at the end of this week, so I'm sure I'll have a lot of great beers to report in the next episode. Speaking of the next episode, I've got some exciting guests to announce. The next episode will feature Sophie Durand, head brewer at Suffolk's Burnt Mill. The following episode after that is still being finalised, so I can't say just yet, but then in October, I'll be recording in person again at Aura Brewing's Tap Room in North London, and I'll be joined by a very special guest co-host, beer writer Melissa Cole. Later in the month, the guest is Jordan from Brighton Brewery Unbarred, and then starting off November will be the brand new American brewery in London, Werewolf. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram if you don't already. I'm at BeerPrimeUK on both of those. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on the platform that you're listening on. And if it gives you the option to rate and leave a comment, then I'd be happy to hear what you've got to say about the podcast. Thanks so much again for listening and I'll see you next time.